1: Elif Batuman is an author and a journalist at The New Yorker with a Ph.D. in comparative literature from Stanford University. Her debut novel, The Idiot, came out in 2017 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. In it, a young Turkish girl named Céline recounts the lessons, travels, and the crush that defined her freshman year at Harvard, with many doses of dry humor and winning insights. A New York Times book critic wrote in her review of The Idiot, there is more oxygen, more life in this book, than in a shelf of its peers. Bateman's second novel, Either Or, is a sequel to the first and drops in on day one of Selin's sophomore year. Let's start with our time period, Aleph. Why are we in the mid mid-90s?
2: The most literal level is because that's those were my formative years. That's when I was in college. The the new one is in the Salem sophomore year, which is nineteen ninety six, which was my sophomore year. But the larger reason for that is I started writing either or in twenty seventeen, which was um, a few months before Me Too. And then, you know, after that, there was the Kavanaugh hearing. And it was a time when we were thinking about Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill and all these things that had actually happened in the 90s. And it was a time when sort of as a culture, we were retelling these stories using, you know, terminology we didn't have then and vocabulary and concepts we didn't have then. And I think a lot of women my age after, especially after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, were narrating their earlier lives to themselves in a a different way. And that was a project that I was doing too. And this uh, either or is very much a project of revisiting that time through the lens of what I know now, but trying to go back into a time before I knew those things and to reconstruct you know, what exactly I did know and didn't know. Because even at the time, I wasn't like, oh yeah, everything's great and the world is perfect, but I didn't have the same understanding I have now. And I really wanted to tease out what seemed okay and what didn't seem okay and why as a way of kind of asking, hopefully of getting readers to ask themselves what today around us might I be accepting, and not because I don't have the language or the concepts that that was the that was the project for me,
1: and so it has it seems to me an additional level of complexity because the idiot had been written before that. I mean, so how different was your mindset on those set of issues between the two books? because you're both traveling in time and comparing this old set of worldview to a new set. But now it feels like it's two worldviews. Selin's freshman year and then sophomore year.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's really true. So so the book is about things that happened in the 90s. I wrote it right at like 2000. And then I revisited it um, in my late 30s. And actually, at the time that I was revising the draft, um, I got together with my current partner, who's a woman, after dating men my whole life. So that really made me look at the, those events Differently, so, so to some extent, you know, it was 2016. There was already a lot of stuff going on, like Brexit had happened. Trump was a specter on the horizon. And there was this Turkish coup attempt. And I was actually thinking about um, the history of coups in Turkey. I'd been living there for a while. So it definitely when I already with the idiot, when I was editing it, I was looking at it with the lens of Now and where was all of this stuff headed, but not to the same extent, not with the same kind of like teleological feeling about it that I did when I was writing the sequel in 2017. When you know, in in 2016, I was still experiencing things as kind of like a glimmer on the horizon, or like, isn't it weird that things are happening that way? And then by 2017, I was like, oh no, we went there, like, we're really in this new period
1: when you say we went there do you mean in terms of me too and sexual politics and really bursting into the open conversations that weren't happening or that were happening in a, in a completely distorted way
2: when i said we went there i think what i was thinking is that there was a promise of the 90s that was this time when you know, history was over and, the, you know, the, it was the end of history and the the Cold War was over. And there was this feeling that we just had to kind of like sit and wait for the cards to fall and like democracy was going to reign everywhere and, and racism was basically over and sexism was basically over. And I didn't have to be a feminist anymore because like that battle was already won for me by earlier generations. And what I had to do was like to stop complaining and, you know, get with the general picture. You know, a lot of people knew that that wasn't true much earlier than I did. But I feel like it it really permeated to a more, like it reached a certain class of like, you know, obviously very privileged people in a way in 2017, in a way that it hadn't yet in 2015, 2016. Right,
1: right. The script we thought we were following got totally shredded. So when you were going back, what is that process like in either or? You have a very strong point of view, uh, and yet you're also trying to recreate what your mind, what the mindset of a woman in 1996 in this journey is thinking. How do you re-inhabit that mindset from 1996?
2: I mean, a lot of this is a part of, like, getting older, and there's a tendency to look back at one's past and see the mistakes that one made. And this is true on a personal level and kind of on a historical level to just look back at the things that were, you know, fucked up in one way or another about the past and think like we were so stupid or I was so stupid. But on the the personal level, you know, like I'm no less stupid now than I was then. I just have better information. That's actually why I called the first book, The Idiot, because it's about this feeling that we have of looking at our past selves and they seem so stupid. But like it seemed kind of like an act of generosity and not just generosity, but an act of historical research to give myself the benefit of the doubt and think like, okay, I wasn't actually, especially dumb. I wasn't uncurious. I wasn't particularly ill-informed. I I had access to to discourses that I now see as liberating discourses like, you know, feminism and, and psychoanalysis to a certain extent. And I saw, you know, I wanted to reconstruct the missed opportunities. Why did those things like in the book, she's people tell her to go to therapy and she doesn't go to therapy. And like my life was changed, it was completely changed and you know, vastly improved by going to therapy. Why didn't I do it then? It didn't seem like a good idea. So I wanted to like dramatize how that was and why that was. And it was partly remembering, but it was partly an imaginative exercise because you know, your memories now are are colored by what you know now. It's kind of complicated, which I think is one reason for writing it as a novel.
1: Sure, right. Tell me about the difference between the ethical and the aesthetic life, which is an important distinction in this book.
2: Oh, yeah, it's kind of a central... Um, distinction in the book is that there's two characters, two friends, and one thinks that she's going to live a life that's supposedly aesthetic, which is going through the main character because she wants to be a writer. So it's going to be a a life that's like a work of art. And the other character decides that she's going to live an ethical life, which is Uh, idea that that is there in 19th century philosophy and they get it from Kierkegaard and it's completely bogus and this is an idea that I think was really exploded kind of in a new way by during Me Too with this like the myth of the great artist like oh he's a he's a great artist but unfortunately like he has to really like hurt people or he has to be a terrible person and we're just starting to question it now but I mean it was You don't actually have to be a horrible person to make great art. And, like, why, like, where would you even get that idea? It's like an idea that, like, only a certain kind of very broken, man would actually have like Simone de Beauvoir writes about, um, in the ethics of ambiguity, which is, which I would send people to read if they want to know if they should live an ethical or an aesthetic life. And she's like, no, the point of life is to free yourself and to free other people because you can't actually be free. Like you can't walk around having free, exciting artistic experiences. If like all around you, people are like starving, like you just can't do it. And it won't be ethical and it won't be aesthetic. Like it won't be anything you have to like, I free myself and others. It's both at the same time and it's like the only way to do anything. But I mean, I didn't understand that when I was younger. And I, I really did believe in the ethical versus the aesthetic. And You know, Celine in the book, when she reads about the aesthetic life, which she decides is what she wants to do because the ethical life seems like it's just getting married and having children and she doesn't want to do that. So obviously it's just to live the aesthetic life. Everything she reads about the aesthetic life is about seducing and destroying young girls until they, you know, like they go crazy. They end up in mental institutions, they kill themselves. And she's like, huh? So like, what am I going to make of that? So the book is kind of about her sort of wrestling with that. But a question that I wanted to, that I've been thinking about a lot is like, and something I wanna sort of tease apart is to what extent is art, the story is the subject of art, is the greatest subject of art, a suffering woman? You know, like, are women suffering? It's like, we see that in in murder mysteries, it's always like a woman who's dead, like what, can we tease those, why is that? Why is that the most interesting thing? Aren't there other things that are more interesting?
1: Let's do, let's talk about those. Right, and who determined that those are the most interesting things?
2: Yeah, exactly, not women.
1: (laughs) right. (laughs) <laughs> but but going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is these, this structure you, you attack the world with, which at that age, you think, I've got it, right? This is the way to yeah. see the world. And everything seems to fit in those categories. And what you don't realize is your structure is totally screwed. But you have an engaged mind, and you're putting things in categories, so you feel like you're, and this is, we're talking about Harvard here, so you feel like you are, um, you know, really engaged in what you're supposed to be there for so for them it, 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 we're supposed to read it as an as an earnest search because this is a question that is totally up for grabs right yeah it's
2: supposed to be earnest it's supposed to be good faith and you're supposed to um ideally my ideal reader i mean i want everyone to see whatever they see but like ideally the reader would see what makes it appealing and then also see why it's why it's screwed. The reader would see more than she sees, but would also see why it's appealing and why it's so fun.
1: And she sees, without giving it away, I mean, she's testing this aesthetic life theory through the book. Um, and, and she is a different person at the end of it. Her her learning process reaches a conclusion closer to the one that you articulated earlier about the kind of falseness of this dichotomy.
2: I think a little bit, yeah, maybe not completely. I think at the end of the book, she still thinks. If I suffered, I'm going to redeem that suffering by writing a great book. Because how else do we get great books? And I guess a question that I want to ask is like, do we need the suffering for the great books? Like, let's think about that too. I, I you know, I wrote this book actually wanting wanting people to not suffer as much as Celine did. And it was kind of an experiment for me. I don't know to what extent it was successful, but I think that the history of the novel, like novels have often been about people who like, you know, like Don Quixote or Anna Karenina, it's about someone who, or crime and punishment, someone makes a huge mistake and they really suffer. And the, ostensibly the moral of the book is like, wow, this person made a big mistake. But when you read it, what you think is like, you know, cause they're, you know, they're trying, they're doing something that think they think is going to like, that's really cool. And like, that cool thing turns out to be deadly. And there's people there all along being like, why don't you not try to be so cool? But like, as a reader, you don't want them to not try to be cool. You want them to like, you know, try to kill people or be Napoleon or have affairs or whatever. And at no point does the book actually ask the question of like, what if those things aren't cool? You know, it's kind of like those things are they're cool, but you pay a price or like, they're exciting. Those are the only things that are really exciting, but then you really suffer, but then that's what art is about. I I just kind of want to try to get out of that and think like, what if those things aren't actually cool? They don't feel good for you. They don't feel good for other people. They cause harm to you and the world. And there's a whole other set of things that are cool that you could be doing instead. I wanted to try to write a novel that would save people suffering.
1: The trouble of of signing up to scripts that we're going to be a dead end by watching her go through that process a little.
2: Yeah.
3: This episode of the Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura Frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life
1: no purchase necessary going back over your own life is was the process did you look at, at journals how did you prompt that return to the space of the 90s
2: well all of the reading experiences that saline has she reads Kierkegaard either, or Nadja by Andre Breton. She reads Proust. Those were all things that I read around that time. So a big part of it, I actually had some of my old books. So I was able to reread them and see the stuff that I'd underlined. And that was kind of fun because I just had no, you know, like now, I guess some part of me is thinking about like, you know, I don't want my look books to look too like ghost or whatever. Like, you know, <laughs> I have to keep markings to a minimum and and seem very like cool with what's going on. But like when I was, Eighteen or nineteen, I was just like, "What's going on?" <laughs> I feel like, I've audience all, all these question marks, and I can see my outrage that I had about, like, how could this person be saying this? And it was, it was felt really good to be able to inhabit that again. I did have some journals. Some, a few of the scenes were things that I had written at the time that I had written the first draft of the idiot, but that didn't make it in because they weren't about that calendar year. A big part of editing the idiot was making it just that year. So I had some of it already. And I was a graphomaniac in those days, so I yeah I had a lot of emails and diaries and things like that.
1: When you went back and looked at your at yourself, was it a person to uh, totally unfamiliar? Were you shocked? Were there things that you had completely forgotten, or was it? Oh yes, I remember this. I remember this person.
2: It was kind of both. I actually I also talked to friends from that period, and I was really surprised the extent to which. One friend in particular would say things that I hadn't thought about in twenty years, and I immediately recognized and remembered it so it's it's all in there somewhere like I think in a way that things that happen now are not in there and will be gone next, next week like those things from back then that formative period is really it's done something like that's how the that's how the dials got set i you it, it's also it's a product of therapy i I would not have been able to do this if I hadn't done like years of of therapy which for me was about removing shame from looking at the past and really just thinking of thinking of myself more as a subjectivity this was also kind of a 90s idea was that and and an idea of myself as an individual and an individualist was that i wasn't especially shaped by my environment and my ideas were really my own and you know i i only realized quite late in life, the extent to which that is, it's impossible. You know, of course you're the product of your time and your place and your parents. And, and that takes some of the shame off too, because some of the crazy ideas that you had, like, I now just think of it as like a pool game, you know, like the ball was hit there and it hit there. And so of course this happened, like there's nothing to be ashamed of about it. And so that was actually really helpful.
1: Is self-authorship a a myth then? Because we're all told when we go to college that, you know, sort of you are the author of your life. Is it a myth or is it just, it's not a myth. You just have to not follow some of these outdated scripts or scripts that are written by, you know, centuries of behavior, including the behavior of your parents.
2: I think self-authorship is real, but I think that it's like authorship is not the great artists sitting on their mountain having a bolt of lightning hit their head. Authorship actually is manipulation of scripts. We can't escape from scripts. We can just try to be conscious of them and to choose them and to kind of like collate them and use the parts that are helpful to us and not use the parts that aren't helpful to us and just kind of have like an openness towards them and an openness towards constructing ourselves and a a way of like, checking in with ourselves to you know sort of like a reality testing like is this script how does this feel like how does my body feel right now that i'm in the script does this feel terrible because like maybe that's not the right script for me
1: right half of the people at harvard you wrote within five minutes of meeting you they were telling you about the influence of their parents when i first read that i thought that was a we were supposed to smirk at those people but what you just described was actually no that's that's a real thing i mean it, in other words we're all influenced by our parents, and that that's a, an important thing to recognize.
2: I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, one thing that I was thinking as I as I got to be this age, and you know, I'm now the age that I could have a kid who's going to college. It makes you think when you get to be the age that your parents were, when when you were a kid, you think about yourself at that time, the child you. Differently. And one thing I've been thinking about was, you know, was Harvard the right place for me? What was Harvard like as a school? What was it like for other people? It's a little bit of a smirky line because the narrator is so proud of herself for thinking that she's not influenced by her parents. That is sort of a choice I get. But but, but basically, yeah, I, I think that we're all super influenced by our parents. And I've been really conscious of the extent to which my friends when I was at Harvard everyone was there to compensate for their parents for something. Like I remember when I got the acceptance letter, my mom was like, you got in and that means I could have gotten in because she had to take so much shit from people who had gone to Harvard because she came here having gone to the Harvard of Turkey, which nobody has heard of here. So, and she had to like make her way here. And it, it really meant something to her. And I think everyone there was just to get in, it was like you have to put so much time into those applications and so much energy. Like, everyone was doing something for someone. Nobody, nobody was just there for themselves.
1: Right. This is going to sound impossibly abstract, but what the hell. What is the point of college?
2: I mean, what's the point of education? I think the pandemic has really made us ask, what is the point of school in general, Selen is, there's a passage near the beginning of the book where Selen is like, wait, why are the classes organized? Like, why are the departments in this and not in something else? And like, why is some people's religion a religion and some people's religion is an anthropology? Like who, I mean, it's it's really the question that I want to ask is how much of the stuff that we take to be the invariant nature of the world is, is just some like, something that some guy made up like years and years ago. And if you look at the history of schools, it's very sinister. You know, they're actually like, the first high schools are like Jesuit institutions that are about discipline. They're not actually about making you... They're not about academics. They're not about making you learn. They're about like maintaining order. So I think it's like, it's it's really high time to to, to think about what the point of college is. I don't know that I have necessarily have an answer to that but i guess it's one of the things where i think it's a really important question i mean do you have a can i ask you
1: (laughs) well i i've i've been thinking about this a lot reading your books and also because i have a freshman and a college and a high school senior so okay and and it feels like uh, celine has the active mind that is attacking the world in front of her and even when she makes these choices that are, you know, she's grabbing a hold of ideas that might ultimately um, disappoint her, or not might, that ultimately disappoint her. She is churning through, and that's why the ending is so interesting to me, the last paragraph. She is kind of breaking the rocks you have to break. She is swinging the hammer. It's not sunshine and roses. It's painful, it's lonely, it has all of these challenges. But it does feel like it gets her somewhere. And that active engagement with the world and that idea of self uh, self authorship does feel like it gets her somewhere and that and that that is a good that that is a good thing she is a meaning making character she seeks meaning in the world yeah
2: she seeks meaning and she gets it from and i would never say that i got nothing from i got a tremendous amount from college and from my education and I learned a huge amount when I was her age, and I think she learns a huge amount. One question I have is like, did I have to suffer that much to learn what I did and what could have been different along the way? But as a pragmatic choice of like, what should an 18 year old person do? Like, I think, you know, I would still send my kid to college. <laughs>
1: How much is either or related to the reaction readers had to The Idiot?
2: I started writing it while I was promoting The Idiot. And two things that came up that felt kind of related were like, one question was, why why are these characters, why aren't they more politically engaged? Why does two different people, one in, in the U.S. and one in Italy a year apart, but one during Trump and the other during this like Matteo Salvini moment, which is kind of a Trump-like moment that they were having there. That's when I was promoting L'Idiota in, in Italy. Um, it asked, you know, there's only one scene in the book where the character reads a newspaper and she reads it and it's a story about the artificial insemination of an elephant in a zoo. Is that all you had? Is that all you were looking at in the newspaper? And I thought about that a lot. Like I hadn't quite made it clear to myself, let alone to other people. And I really wanted to write another book where I would be, have those things on the top of my, so basically, you know, these questions that people ask made me look back at the idiot differently and see that it actually was a much more political book that I, than I realized that actually, you know, race problems were there in in a way that a lot, a lot of things were there that I hadn't completely thought about and that I wanted to have at the top of my mind. Another thing that people talked about with the idiot was why Celine and Ivan don't have sex at the end of the book. And this was something that actually some readers were really upset about. It was a minority, but a very vocal minority, like this whole response to like, why didn't they have sex? It hadn't occurred to me to have them have sex. I didn't have sex my freshman year of college. And it put me back into that that mental state of remembering in my personal story of my life, I thought a lot about my first year of college and this relationship that I had, that was a little bit like the relationship in the idiot. And I didn't really think about the second year. And then I started thinking about the second year as I was promoting the idiot and realizing that, I had felt like a failure because I didn't have sex with in my freshman year of college. Whatever those readers internalized, I had felt it too. And where did it lead me? You know, it led me to the end of to places in the end of either or that I don't want to spoil, but they're not good places you want to end up. They're not good. Right.
1: Well, OK, so but if the if the old thing is we're supposed to show and not tell, isn't there irritation at the fact that that Yvonne and Cillian don't have sex? irritation that they didn't follow the script, that this didn't end with the climax that they are expecting because they feel like they're being led up to it? I mean, in other words, haven't you basically made them feel a part of what your larger project is, even if you maybe even weren't thinking about it in specific ways for that first book that you did for the second one.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Because Céline kind of realizes it more in either or when she starts kind of doing this research to find out what the aesthetic life is. And then she's like, oh, not just the aesthetic life, but narrative in general for a woman is always, someone has to want to fuck her. Like someone has to want to have sex with her. And otherwise it's not a story. And then it made me think about reader those readers of The Idiot.
1: Well, and there's a line in there where, In either or there's a line where Chekhov is being discussed and his at some point somebody says his genius was that things didn't happen in his works. And I thought that and immediately I thought, oh, well that's (laughs) that's talking about the idiot. Because because obviously things happen, but they don't happen. I mean, the sex doesn't happen, which is in fact something happening. It's a big thing happening that they don't have sex, at least it felt to me, in the way it's not happening in the way people are expecting it which led me to write in the margin, how do you render passivity? Like, I don't just mean in the sexual context, but I mean, there are times where it feels like Celine is not acting. That seems extremely hard to render because kind of action, it feels like we know.
2: I mean, I think it's related to the thing about writing from a place of asking questions and not from answers. And it also comes from... I don't know. Like I I was just thinking about when I was first trying to, when I was writing like the first draft of the idiot, when I was in my twenties, a problem that I had, and in general, a problem that I had in early writing before I like did the thing that they call finding your voice is I had a lot more anger. I, you know, I was like, and I was always trying to kind of like recruit the reader again, you know, like, can't you see how like stupid and dumb this thing is? And there was a kind of like letting go that for me, this is really random, but it came to me from reading Haruki Murakami, who does not do that at all. He's like the most chill narrator. He's like, I was walking by and I saw a well, and I thought I should sit in that well. Like it's (laughs) just like, what, why? But there's something about it that let like, that was where the key was for me. It was like in a mode of kind of like, just a little bit of backing off that gave me a little bit of space And I think that actually for Sinan and either or, her project to live an aesthetic life is it's also a project of being open to something that life is going to give her. Like it's, it's a kind of receptivity and that receptivity is also a kind of passivity. She's not trying to shape it. She's trying to like be there and be open to it. I mean, I think that's a wonderful thing to try to achieve in writing actually is a kind of receptivity and openness.
1: Yeah. I mean, what you just described was a, maybe not an epiphany, but sounds like an epiphany. I mean, that there was a moment where you feel like you found your voice. And so how now when you're writing do you know it's going well? What does that feel like? And is it different for fiction versus nonfiction?
2: The way I can tell that it's going well is when I can feel it's like you can feel something kind of sweeping you along and sweeping a reader in too, and you can just feel that those questions are questions that you're now asking together with someone and that you're with them and you're not talking to them like it it really feels like a relationship with the reader that you can feel in your own writing when you go back and read it
1: let me i have to ask you this question because Celine is often including at some wonderful moments observing herself while she's also engaging which is obviously what you're doing as a writer as well you write at one point when she's thinking about becoming a writer it's like you're always detached from the world because you're always writing do you really think that's true or could you make the case that you're more engaged with the world because you're always seeing it in these two different ways?
2: I have noticed that when I'm when I'm reporting a nonfiction story, I actually feel like I Because everything that I see at every particular moment, because I'm writing this kind of uh, flowery uh, New Yorker kind of writing, where you know maybe I'm going to want to describe that tree, or maybe I'm going to want to describe some latte someone's drinking. Like I'm looking at everything and thinking of it as a potential description, and paying attention to what people wear, which I don't really notice because I I know I might have to describe it, and it really makes me feel like I'm living more fully in the moment but i also find it exhausting and unsustainable and after like a week of it i'm like i just want to go to bed and think about nothing ever again but like while i'm doing it i always think i need less sleep while i'm doing that and i i just think like oh if i could just live my whole life like that that would be um th- that would be the ideal i also started meditating kind of recently and I find it so, so helpful, but I've noticed that the like the meditative state is the opposite of the writing state because you're really you're turning off the thinking mind and you're not thinking of yourself as a subjectivity. And I, I do find it kind of troubling that clearly the most sanity-generating thing that I do is the exact opposite of my job. And I I almost wonder if if writing is it's sort of a provisional thing that we have needed at this time as like this time like thousands of years and you know probably going on for thousands of years if we don't destroy the world like as these fractured subjectivities, it's like a tool to help us, but someday we're not going to need it anymore. And we're not even going to understand what the point of it was. And that that will actually be a much happier time than now, which is an idea I used to find really threatening when I was younger, because I wanted the things that I love to be eternal and to be forever. And I wanted to think that people would always love and need anakranana. but now I don't feel so bad about thinking that we might not need those things anymore.
1: Oh, it scares me, but, I, but, but, but your point about meditation is a great one because it's the incursions and your writing has so many beautifully rendered little sentences about just glancing things about behavior, but it seems to me you wouldn't exist if you didn't have the kind of mind that noticed when somebody was just doing something in a way that was deeply idiosyncratic, but that was just the normal part of their lives. And those incursions are what give detail, which gives a story life. And in meditation, you basically are constantly putting the incursions away, you know, just focus on the breath. Don't, don't listen to the incursion. I mean, when you notice something, do you must, you capture it or does it just come up, you know, to you when you're writing?
3: You know, I almost
2: feel like I wrote so much in my, like, cause I was in grad school for a long time. I was like, you know, my... I turned in my dissertation, like on my 30th birthday. So my whole twenties, I was in, which means that you're always sitting with a notebook and someone is talking and sometimes you're listening to them and sometimes you're not, I just wrote nonstop. And sometimes it was about what they were doing or what different people said. And I don't really write like that anymore. I do have a, I have a diary. I got one of those five-year diaries, which is bonkers where you write something and then you can see what what you were doing last year. It's a
1: line a day. yeah, Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a little more than one line a day, but I do that. But I almost feel like I'm still just kind of like processing and thinking about all this stuff that I don't know. I feel like there's such a major delay and a major lag. Like, I feel like I'm a writer now because my, not just my 20 year old self, but like my six year old self really wanted to be a writer and I'm doing what she wanted to do. And it's not even what I would necessarily choose to do now, but like, I have all of that from, I'm still writing. I'm still a stenographer for like a very observant 11 year old. Yes.
1: Well, we are all the beneficiaries of that. It was a delight to read you and a a real joy to talk to you. Will there be a third volume or will we, uh, what can we expect?
2: Coming out hopefully later this year, there is sort of a spinoff, which is called Tituba, which is going to be with picture books, which is an imprint of Gagosian Press. And it's about Selin's attempts to write a novel about Yvonne after she graduates college and how the Salem Witch Trials come into it and derail her, it turns into sort of a little book about the Salem Witch Trials. I definitely can't keep doing, you know, a year per book because I will die and she will be, you know, in her twenties still. <laughs> um, so I think she's going I think she. The next volume we might find her in her thirties if, if, if that ends up happening. Excellent. I hope it will. Well, good. Yeah, well, thank you very much.
1: We want to. We want to hear about her.